Thank you, everybody, for joining us as we conclude the sixth chapter of Hilchas Beis Habachira, the laws about Hashem's chosen home, the Beis HaMikdash. Now, if you're just joining us, I have to tell you that it would be a good idea to go and watch the previous classes because this ultimately is the culmination of a conversation we've been having about consecration. In short, the conclusion, concluding halachas of the sixth chapter of Hilchas Beis Habchira talk about the notion of expanding the sacred scrimmage of Yerushalayim and of the Beis HaMegdash. We hear the requisites. We hear about the actual procedure. We talked about the origin of where we know this from. It's from the book of Ezra, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, when Nehemiah was governor of Yerushalayim, how they actually expanded the city of Yerushalayim, or so it seems. We learned that they didn't actually expand anything, but they merely built on that which had been previously established. But this is markedly different than the way we look at the rest of the land of Eretz Yisrael. And so in the concluding halacha of Vichas Beis Abachira, the Rambam is going to frame the difference between the shades of sanctity that are found in the Beis HaMikdash and in Yerushalayim vis-a-vis the Holy Land of Israel. For all of these things, we use the terminology of sacred soil and holy land, and yet clearly there seems to be a vast difference. We'll learn about the difference between the mountain, Haramoria, the municipality, Yerushalayim, and then the country, namely the land of Israel. So please join me for this journey. This class will be a little bit longer than the previous classes as I don't want to break up the subject matter. And this really brings to fruition everything that we've been learning over the last couple of weeks. I do hope that you'll be able to follow. I'll try to make it palatable. Some of the material we'll learn tonight is somewhat sophisticated. Let's begin with the actual verbiage of the Rambam in Hebrew. The Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon Hasfardi concludes the sixth chapter of Laws of Chosen Home about the Beis HaMikdash with Halacha 16. And he concludes with a proverbial question. Why do I say? Why do I say? Says Rambam, as if anticipating your question. That Kiddush Gerishayna Kidsha La'asid Lavai that when it comes to Beis HaMikdash, and when it comes to Yerushalayim, Rambam says, I told you that this is a sanctity that was achieved in its time, but not only in its time or for its era, but rather for eras, periods, epochs to come. Latid Lavo in this syntax does not mean the future that has yet to come as in the Messianic age, it means future ages. And the Rambam mentioned this multiple times, that the Kedusha, that the holiness, the sanctity of the Beis HaMikdash was not in any way re-established in any meaningful way during the time of the second Beit HaMikdash. They merely identified the area of sacred scrimmage and rebuilt the Beis HaMikdash. And we talked about the idea that there was a Mikdash without walls for a while. As long as they identified the actual area, once they knew where the scrimmage of the Mizbech was and built the Mizbech, they were already bringing offerings. Even the city of Yerushalayim was not consecrated per se. There wasn't even a reactivation. They went through the motions. 
So Rambam says, why do I say this? Why do I say that Kedusha Rishonah, that the original act of holiness, of sanctifying those areas, the area of the Beis HaMikdash, and the area of Yerushalayim, the holy city, the municipality that serves as the ground zero for Jewish spirituality. Why do I say that this is Kidsha La'asid Lavi, not only in its time, but for future eras to come? And then, when I'm not talking about the mountain or municipality, when we converse about country, oh, that's a different story. When it comes to the sanctity, the holiness of the rest of the land of Israel, you say, what's that holy for? <laughs> I know what Beis HaMikdash is holy for. You can do sacred acts of communion, of oneness with Hashem. Korban means closeness, right? So you can do ketores, which means to be knotted or to be woven as one with Hashem. You can do those things in the Beis HaMikdash. Certain sacred foods can only be eaten in the Beis HaMikdash. Various rituals like kindling the menorah, like the piling the showbread on the golden table can only be done in its appropriate place in the Beis HaMikdash. And the Azara, the courtyard of the Beis HaMikdash is the place in which Kohanim are able to eat the korban, the offering remnants, and in doing so, they're elevating the people that brought those korbanot. And in the city of Yerushalayim, we consume kodshikhalim, a lighter form of can be declined, pardon me, ingested even by ordinary Jews, not only by Kohanim, so that's a step-down level of holiness, of sanctity, but this too, this too is to be achieved only in the holy city, only in the municipality of Yerushalayim, within the proverbial walls of Yerushalayim. We talked about the notion of Ma'asar Sheni, we talked about the idea of Bikurim, which are various agricultural gifts, things that are set aside for a sanctified and a hallowed purpose. With what is the land of Israel holy? So the Rambam says, with regard to leaving the fields fallow on the seventh year. That's a mitzvah that applies in the holy land of Israel, not here in Canada. We work the land of Israel for six years. We allow the land to lie fallow on the seventh. In our weekly Shabbat, it's not about the land, it's about us. So as a Jewish man, regardless in the world of where I live. If I was a farmer, I wouldn't be working my land, but not because the land is holy, but because I was designated with a holy mission and purpose. I was chosen by Hashem to keep His Shabbat holy. But in Eretz Yisrael, it's not the person. A non-Jew living in the land of Israel can work his land on Shabbat, but on Shavit, on the seventh year, it is forbidden for a Jew to work the land. Which land? Which land is sacred and holy unto God so as to create this proscription of any kind of work? The answer is Eretz Yisrael, the holy land called Israel. How about Meisers, about various tithes, which Radvaz points out in Rambam syntax, oftentimes will refer not only to the tithes, but also to Turuma, also to the first gift, the heave offering that is given to the Kohanim. And of its genre. So there we say, That was not done for future epochs. That was not done for future eras. Now the Rambam, of course, is referring to what he writes in the laws of Teruma, in the book of Zeroyim, which is a book that precedes the book of Avodah. The Rambam there says that the land of Israel was sanctified 
when the Jewish people left the land of Egypt, the Exodus, after their 40-year sojourn or delayed journeys in the Sinai Desert, they came into the Holy Land of Israel, Vinitkadsha Kedusha Rishona. I'm quoting now from the laws of Terumot in the book of Zroyim, the fifth halacha, first chapter. Kevon Shagolu, once the initial settlement which lasted for nearly a thousand years, once that initial settlement which lasted for nearly a millennium, once they were exiled, says Rambam Botlo Kedushoson, the holiness of the land of Israel is no longer. There was no holy land of Israel during the 70 years of exile. Because the original sanctity, Rambam says, because it was as a result of conquering the land of Israel by the Jewish people. So that sanctity, which was created through kibush, through conquering the land, was only effective for as long as the Jewish people would be able to build a dominion and to live in the land that they had conquered. They did not sanctify it for a future era in which we would have no dominion, no governance over the land of Israel. So that means, simply stated, that once the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, and once the Jewish people were routed from the land of Israel, and once it became desolate and empty, that no longer maintained or contained holiness. Once the proverbial children of the exile, once they came back, went back up to the land of Eretz Yisrael. And this is in the post-Purim period, where Ezra and Nehemiah and Yehoshua the Kohen Gadol lead the Jewish people back into Eretz Yisrael. And they assumed ownership of a portion, a portion of the biblical land of Israel, not all of the land of Israel, a portion of the biblical land of Israel. Rambam says, then Kitshua Kedusha, then they sanctified that soil, they consecrated that land of Israel in a manner that that it's applicable for its time and for future times, epochs and periods. And what about the areas that the proverbial Babylonian exiles did not take hold of, did not express ownership over? The areas which hechaziku behem oile mitzrayim, that the Egyptian exiles or their children had come to take ownership of, Ramam says not so simple. It doesn't really have biblical holiness attached to it anymore. That's something that will have to be achieved by the coming of Mashiach. Now I'm quoting to you from the laws of Truma, because the Rambam, one of the principles of Rambam is that he does not repeat himself. If he said this earlier, he expects you to know exactly what he talked about. So I have to fill you in. I'm giving you, so to speak, the Cliff's Notes and telling you what he wrote about. Now let's go back to the laws of Beis Abichira. So he says, the land of Israel, like Hitchalah said loving, the land of Israel was not sanctified for future periods. Well, in that case, then Ezra would have had to sanctify the base of Migdash all over again. Would he not have? Ezra would have had to sanctify the city of Yerushalayim all over again. Says Rambam, no. Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, Beit HaMikdash, Mount Moriah is different. Why? Lefi Shekdushat HaMikdash Yerushalayim. Because the sanctity and holiness, or the consecration, if you will, of the holy mountain and the city that envelops it, 
the temple and Jerusalem are not as a result of the Jewish people's conquering or dwelling in that part of land, but rather mepnei hashchina. It's because it's because of the divine presence, as the Rebbe points out. Because this is Mekoima Shal Hashchina. The Rebbe Lakut Asichas, volume 36, says, Hashem chose this place and said, Here my Shechina, here my presence will be. And because the Shechina, because the presence of God, as it made itself manifest in our world, selected and chose this area, this holy mountain. And we know this because God says, Zot Menuchati Ad. God says, This is the place I rest. Proverbially speaking, it's a euphemism. This is the place I am manifest. This is the place I, if you will, reside. That's Adeyad. God didn't choose it temporarily, but rather for posterity. This interesting idea of the Shechina being, so to speak, establishing itself in a permanent way is also, um, the Orsameach argues that it says, Vihikdashti. He quotes a different verse. He quotes a verse from the book of Chronicles. And he says, the truth is that this, this verse that the, that the Rebbe is quoting here is logical from a Maimonidean perspective because in the first chapter in Halacha Gimel, in the third Halacha, this is the actual verse that the Rambam quotes. The Rambam brings this verse down. He says that, the, the, that once the, the Beis HaMiglish was built in Yerushalayim, all other places became proscribed from building a house for Hashem. And there is only one eternal house for God, and that's in Jerusalem, specifically on Mount Moriah. And that's why David said, King David said, Zeu, Beit Hashem, Holikim, Vezem is This is Divra Yomim Chronicles 1, chapter 25 in the beginning. And then it says, Ve'omer zot menuchati ad. This is the place that my shechina, my presence will dwell for eternity. That's a quote from the book of Psalms. Psalm 132, verse 14. Now the Rambam, Maimonides, then quotes this verse. So it's reasonable, it makes perfect sense, that the Rebbe quotes the verse that Maimonides quotes, which indicates of the eternal holiness of Yerushalayim. But for some reason, the Arsameach re reaches for a different verse, and I'm just sharing with you to give you a completer picture. He says that if you look at the book of Chronicles 2, in the seventh chapter, verse 15, it says, I, God, have sanctified this house for eternity. And there it says, For his sanctuary that he sanctified or consecrated for eternity. So the Arsa Meir says, obviously, this is something lasting. The Gemara Mesechet Shavuot on page 16, side B, says, Mikdash Shekdushoto Kedushot Olam. That's quoting, quote, that's what the um, Rabbeinu Yosef Kurkus, 17th century commentary in the Rambam, is quoting in the name of the Bale Hatosfos, and that he says that when the Mikdash was sanctified, it was sanctified or consecrated for eternity. So there you have it, a number of different sources that indicate that the notion of the Beit HaMikdash and its sanctification were something that was lasting. And now the Rambam says, God's presence didn't leave that location. God's presence continues to dwell on the holy mountain of Moriah. God's presence continues to be in the sacred municipality, which is called Yerushalayim, because it has the Shechina, and the Shechina doesn't dissipate. Hashem, Almighty God, does say in His Torah, Leviticus 26, 
Vahashimoisius Migdash Migdashechem. This is the verses in Parshat Bechukotai of the Tochacha of the rebuke, a stinging rebuke that the Jewish people got, a premonition of foretelling of what would happen if we would not listen to the will of Hashem, if we would not comport ourselves in accordance with the will of our Creator. God says, I will make desolate my sanctuary. And from this we say, aha, our sages say, even though my sanctuaries are desolate, as in destroyed, they still remain in their original holiness, even though they are actually emptied out, even though they've been destroyed or become desolate. Interestingly enough, in the Roman print of the Rambam, it says, instead of, so we have different, different uh, texts over here in Maimonidean, Maimonidean origin. Bottom line, it means the same thing. Either emphasizing the desolateness or the destruction. At any rate, So that's why the Beis Hamikdash continues to be holy. Now, the truth is Ramam could have stopped here, but he did open a can of worms. We did kind of indicate that there's a difference between Yerushalayim and Beit Hamikdash vis-a-vis the rest of the land of Israel. If you ask anybody, say, where is God's presence most? They'll say the land of Israel. They're right. The verse, the Pasuk, in the Chumash, the Torah says it. Hashem It is the land that the proverbial eyes or supervision of God are upon. From the beginning of the year until the end. So you cannot say that the land of Israel doesn't have Shino or presence. But the sanctity of the land of Israel was not brought about through that special divine supervision, through the proverbial eyes of God that are euphemistically always upon Israel. The sanctity was brought about through acts taken by a holy nation, and that's Am Yisrael. And the Rambam now so returns to addressing the question that he himself provoked. The responsibility the obligation, the commitment that the land of Israel demands of its inhabitants, of Am Yisrael, with regard to the fields lying fallow on the seventh year on the sabbatical, with regards to Maisreis, the tithes and the offerings that are given from its agriculture. That's not because Hashem's shechina. That's about ownership. And that's about ownership that was established by virtue of the multitudes of Israelites, the Jewish people, who had come to dwell in their proverbial homeland, their eternal homeland. And therefore, since they conquered the land, thusly ordaining its holiness, once the land was wrested from them, reconquered, so to speak, if you will, or conquered by a morating foreign nation, occupied by another government, who exiled the indigenous Jewish people from that land, so then the original conquering of the land of Israel simply faded away. Biblically speaking, it became exempt from Maisris and from Shvius, from the idea of the tithes, which as Radvaz tells us includes also Truma and various other things, as well as the seventh year in which the fields are fallow. It's not from the land of Israel. Israel means the land of the people called Israel. There's Am Yisrael and then there is the Eretz of Am Yisrael. So the Am, the nation called Yisrael, 
They have a land, and their land is called Eretz Israel. But if the people are exiled, there are no longer Jewish people, no longer the nation of Israel living in the land, and it's no longer under the possession of the, land, of the, of the nation called Israel, then it's no longer the land of Israel. But that was the first time around. The cave on Shaolu Ezra. Once Ezra returned with the, with the Babylonian exiles in the post-Purim period, the Kidshah, and he sanctified the land of Israel. The people of Israel came back to their original land. Never in history before or after has a nation lived, an indigenous nation lived in a land for a millennia. By the way, the Canaanites are not the indigenous people. They conquered the land of Israel at the very same time that Abraham came there. The original land belonged to a nation of Semites who were disgorged and removed by foreign Canaanite nations. The foreign Canaanite nations lived there for less than four centuries. We, the Jewish people, returned to the land that God had promised to Abraham and then to Isaac and Jacob and lived there for nearly a thousand years. Never in history has a nation been disgorged, despoiled, exiled, and then returned. Never happened. Not before, not after. The Greek people did not come home to Greece after the Romans despoiled them. The ancient Egyptians, the Hyksos, did not come back to the land of Israel when they were routed by their enemies. There are no ancient Romans. The Phoenicians live in the pages of a history book. But the Jewish people, we live. Am Yisrael Chai, the nation of Israel lives and is well, despite the fact that we have been hounded and persecuted relentlessly by all kinds of peoples and faith systems and cultures and civilizations. We continue to live and are continue, continue to be vibrant and we always continue to learn about the land of Israel and yearn for the land of Israel. So when Ezra returned, creating the precedent for a return to the land of Israel, the first and the only precedent ever set in history, he did not establish the holiness by virtue of conquering because the land, the land was technically under the governance of the Persian Empire, of Cyrus, of Koresh II. What happened was that Cyrus allowed the Jewish people to return to the land. He said, the rightful owners are the Jewish people. They should reestablish themselves in their rightful land. And by coming and taking possession, they were fulfilling the law of the land, the law in the empire. So when they came and they came and took possession, it was through chazaka. It was through personal, so to speak, taking of possession, assumption of ownership. And Kol Mokim Sheikh any place where the proverbial Babylonian exiles actually established their ownership, Niskadesh Bekedushas Ezra Hashniyad, and that became sanctified with the second wave of holiness, which is the wave that was led by Ezra, who Mekudesh Hayoim. It's sanctified today. So when people come along about the biblical land of Israel and say that it isn't sanctified, they're not wrong. But the land of Israel as it was lived in and sanctified during the Second Temple era continues to be Artsenu Akdesha, the holy land of Israel. The Afalpisha Nilka Mimenu, and although the land was wrested from us by the Romans and then by Byzantines and creators and Muslim invaders, 
it does not change the fact that this land remains sacred, its soil is holy, the country of Eretz Yisrael remains Eretz Yisrael. And it is telling and extremely compelling that never since the Jewish people left has there been an independent monarchy that lived in this land. Never has there been a currency that was indigenous to this land. Never has there been a language indigenous to this land. Never has there been custom and convention that is unique to this land. It was simply a land that was occupied by foreigners and had vagabonds, people moving in and people moving out. I'm very sorry. I know this is not politically correct, but it is historically factual. We, the Jewish people, were called Palestinians. We were the Palestinian Jews. There were Palestinian Jews and Palestinian Arabs. <laughs> Turn of the century. That's what the Jews were called there. There was no country called Palestine. It was a Turkish province, which ultimately was usurped by the British. And the British had a mandate that was given to them by the League of Nations. But we were as Palestinian as the Arabs who were living in the land. Not, neither really were. And there is no intrinsic difference in language, custom, faith system, or convention between the millions of Arabs living in Jordan and the millions of Arabs living in Israel. No difference whatsoever. The Jerusalem Post used to be called the Palestinian Post. That was a Jewish paper. So the point is that the land for us was always holy. The Chayev, therefore, the obligation is there for Shvius, for the notion of the sabbatical year, and for Maestras. As we explained in Hilchus Truma. Now this is, this is a little bit hard to understand. If the first sanctity of the land of Israel, if the consecration that happened during the days of Joshua could fade away, it could be interrupted, why couldn't the sanctity brought about in the time of Ezra be interrupted? And the Rambam's difference is, is hard to define. That was conquered, so it could be reconquered or conquered by another people. But here it was chazoka. Chazoka means assumption of ownership, expression of ownership. Now we become the presumed owners. That can never go away. Why not? So I spent a lot of time researching and thinking and discussing, and I will share with you the gist of the explanation that arises out of many fascinating things that arises from the words of the Kesef Mishnah, a major commentary on the Rambam, based on words of the Shittum B'Kubetzas, a major collection of commentary on the, on, the, uh, on the Talmud, as well as rulings of the Rambam himself that we read of later in the book of Trumas with regard to the difference between a non-Jew owning a portion of the land of Israel, and finally, the way the Evan Ha'ozel sews this all together. And I will conclude with the fascinating insight that the Rebbe layers on top of all this. And it goes something like this. I'm trying to simplify a very, very complex and sophisticated subject. When the Jewish people came to the land of Israel, they did not own their individual homes or properties for a significant amount of time. In fact, we are told that it took seven years for the land of Israel to be conquered, and then it's another seven years for the land to be apportioned and divided up in its fullness. We, the Jewish people, came to the land of Israel and conquered it, and in doing so, actualized the holiness or the latent potential that God had ordained for this land from the days of the patriarchs and matriarchs. How has that happened? It happened through the notion of kibush, through the notion of we as a nation conquered. Legally, 
the conquering of Eretz Yisrael by the nation called Israel is binding. And since that's legally binding, it ultimately brought with it the various details of holiness that are attached to that legal status. Legally, if a country or an army conquers that land, they can displace the original owners of the land. And they legally become the new owners, which even in today's day and age is actually the law, international law, that's applied everywhere but Israel. If there is a war, a war of defense fought, then the winners are the keepers. That's international law everywhere except Israel. Why? It makes sense. An army conquers, an army establishes governance, they ultimately have the right to establish dominion there. So since our first holiness came about through a national conquest, another nation's conquest could actually nullify the conquest that we made. And the problem is this. Since the holiness was brought to bear by virtue of a conquest, so since the original conquest can be disputed and ultimately displaced and replaced, so the holiness was hinging, the legality of the holiness, because the holiness, it's funny, in like Yiddishkeit, holiness, sanctity, and legality are not mutually exclusive. Ritual law and monetary law are not two different forms or two different systems. It's one Torah. The sanctity was brought about. The sanctity was actualized. The sanctity was developed and it were hinged on the notion of conquest. And so when another nation, another empire conquered the land, in, in doing so, they essentially vaporized the previous conquering. They, 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 they displaced that previous conquering. Now a new nation had conquered the land. So who was the legal owner of the land called Israel? The Babylonian Empire. So who are Babylonians to remove sanctity, to take away Kedusha? The answer is, it's not about Babylonians. It's about legalities. And since, legally speaking, a nation has the legal right to wage war, and since a nation has the legal right to be a victor, then that establishes law as the Shitu Mikobetzis puts it, Dina, the Malchusa Dina, the law of governance, of governance is law. Not a thuggery, a monarchy. Okay, that's law. Now, in the time of the second base of Migdash, when we came to the land of Israel, we didn't conquer anything. We didn't conquer it because the land of Israel had actually once been part of the Babylonian Empire, but the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persian and Median Empire. So now the Persians and the Medes, they own the land. Cyrus II allowed the Jewish people to come home to the land of Israel and he said, all indigenous peoples shall return to their indigenous lands. It was written obliquely. You can find the original stele or the, the piece of clay with this, with this ruling. It's in the United Nations. I saw it with my own eyes. It's displayed in the United Nations today. It doesn't speak about the Jewish people. It doesn't speak about the land of Israel. It's a broad statement about indigenous peoples going back to their indigenous lands and rebuilding their houses of worship and temples. Here's the thing. No other nation asked for this and no other nation acted upon it. So it was written for the Jewish people about the land of Israel, but it was written as a law, a broad general law. It only applied to one place factually, but that's how the law was written. 
So when the Jewish people, the exiles, came home with Ezra, how did they establish themselves in the land of Israel? By virtue of the dominion that had been granted to them by the Persian Empire. Taxes were paid to Persia. The currency was Persian. The law of the land was Persian. They were ultimately a vassal state. So as far as a nation is concerned, we did not take hold of the land, but rather it was a nation comprised of, uh, comprised of individuals, individual families reestablished themselves in their indigenous homeland. And because there was no conquering, because there was chazaka, because there was assumption of possession, so that's something that actually can't be taken away. An army can displace an army. National conquest can be displaced by national conquest, but personal ownership cannot. For even if a foreign army now controls a country, it doesn't take away the possession of land of people who live there. The people who have deeds to the land still have their deeds. They just may be paying municipal taxes to another municipality. They may be paying the provincial or federal taxes to another authority. They're still the owner of their houses. When one country conquers another country, it doesn't disgorge all the inhabitants. It doesn't take away the rightful homeowners, the rightful landowners, plantation owners. I'm not talking about people who established themselves there just on a whim. We had a thousand years of history. We were away for 70 years. We came back home to our original homes. So the fact that later the Roman army came and crushed the Jewish people and mass murdered millions of us and despoiled and emptied our land doesn't change the notion of the deed the deed, the ownership remains. And here's where it gets fascinating. Because legally, we still have the deed. Legally, the families, which are made up of, comprised together a nation, still own this land. So what happens is that ultimately we, the Jewish people, were never, if you will, legally removed from the land. We were brutally removed from the land. We were murdered, but our deed is still valid. So the conquest cannot undo individual assumption of ownership. And the Rebbe goes on to say, so, so how and why does that work the way he says? In Hashem's infinite wisdom, Hashem decided that the first holiness should hinge on the legality of conquest, and conquest legally can be displaced. But Hashem ordained it that the second holiness would not be brought about through conquest, but it would be brought about through assumption of ownership, private ownership, personal ownership. And personal ownership, that isn't displaced through conquest. In fact, nothing can take that away because the Ramah himself rules that an individual non-Jew owning a piece of land of Israel cannot remove sanctity. A national conquest could remove a national conquest, but an individual owning something cannot take away the sanctity of the land of Israel. And as such, you know, you come out with something fascinating. Broadly speaking, we, national things are always stronger, the community, the nation. But here it turns out that Am Yisrael was really comprised of the proverbial Reb Yisrael, because, you know, Israel is the name of a land, it's the name of a nation, it's also the name of individuals. Private individuals have the name of Yisrael. So as the, we say, Reb Yisrael, the individual member of the nation of Israel, the individual Jew, and his ownership to the land of Israel could never be removed whilst a national hold can be displaced by another nation, individual connection 
is something that you can never do away with. So the individuals were actually more powerful in a certain way. The individual assumption of ownership was more personal, more profound, and ultimately more powerful. And so Ezra's sanctification, with the sanctification that happened in the time of Ezra, that hinged not on national conquest, but an individual expression of ownership, was the shaita, will the for its time and for eternity. This, of course, has no bearing on Yerushalayim, no bearing on the Temple Mount, because the mountain and the municipality, that holiness does not hinge on the individuals or the nation. That holiness hinges on God. And nobody can displace God. So when God makes that His holy place, it remains holy forever. And it was holy especially for Hashem's special children. And so Yerushalayim, Ir HaKodesh, Jerusalem, our Jewish holy city, made holy by virtue of God's presence for our benefit. Hashem says, I will dwell amongst you. You make me a migdash. God is the one who brings the Shekhinah. We just prepare the reality on the ground as Hashem has ordained it for us, but Hashem is the one who cloaks this area with sanctity and holiness. So Yerushalayim and the Besam Migdash have a holiness that nobody can ever remove or destroy. What we will do when Mashiach comes, as we learned in the previous halachas, is expand that sacred scrimmage, continue to develop that holiness and make it even larger and broader and exactly how that will happen remains to be seen in Mertz Hashem. Hopefully, with the coming of Mashiach Tzidkenu and the ushering in of the full expression of the holiness that is innate, although it remains unfortunately, so to speak, subterranean, it remains latent, the bringing forth of that holiness in a revealed way, when Mashiach will emerge Hashem speedily and in our days, rebuild the Beis HaMikdash in its rightful place, when Yerushalayim will be restored to its spiritual grandeur and glory, and from there will come peace to the whole world, to all good peoples. May we merit to see that wonderful day dawn, Bimheira, will be Amenu. Amen. Thank you.